It is indeed a privilege to be this morning given the opportunity to share with you from this text what God's speaking to us. We are thankful there's a couple of families, one from Muenberg County, the Porters. Thank the Lord for bringing you here. Also a family from the church, or from the school that was with us in Sunday school this morning, Steve and his family. We're delighted in your all's being with us. This morning, as we continue on in the series that our dear Pastor Mark had begun several weeks ago, there's some things that he had reminded us weekly about what John was trying to do in this letter. Let me remind you of those things again. Promote our joy, protect the truth, prevent us from sinning, and provide assurance. And as Mark would say, the last one was probably John's main point. And there were some ways in which John was encouraging those believers there in that day to know that they knew who God was, to know that they knew personally who God was. One of them was that they believed the right things, doctrinally or theologically. They practiced the right things. Their behavior, their moral and ethical choices were modeled after Christ. And relationally, those three areas of an individual's life gave them great confidence that they knew who God was. Now, we can ask the question, why was there a dilemma or a struggle in this particular church or groups of churches? That's a fair question. And I believe our text this morning has much to do with answering that question. As the people of God were called into a family, right? When one in the family leaves, it creates and causes an issue or a struggle. Would it be in your family if you had children and one of them just chose one day to get up and leave? They no longer thought the way you thought, believed the way you believed, appreciated what you appreciated. Would that be to you a great concern? Or would you think that quite normal? I had two daughters. If one of them woke up one morning and said, I'm out of here. Dad, I don't like what you like. I don't love who you love. I don't care about the things you care about. Do you think that next morning I'd get up and go to work just like I always have? That my thoughts and feelings would be the same? That my struggles would not increase? Certainly they would. So I want to give you a flavor of just what these folks were experiencing. They in that church knew what it was to be a family. When several, if not many, had left, it had created a great difficulty, and rightly so. Let me read a passage of Scripture. They went out from us. There was a church split, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all were not of us. Let me ask you something. How difficult and discouraging and confusing would this have been for those in that church? Don't think that it was just a one-day event. Think of it. The long and difficult weeks and months and possibly years of differences and debates 
of arguments and people leaving. Families completely split apart. Friendships lost. You see, to us, these are nameless people. To them, it was their family members who had a name and a face. It was their friends that they lived beside and their neighbors across the street. It was their people they worked with. They knew these folks. They'd worshiped with them. Some of them were not probably, as Paul said in Acts, I think 19, leaders in the church. What does this remind us of, this circumstance and situation? Sadly, it reminds us of much of why the Scripture was written, right? Letter after letter written to the churches from the faithful apostles and others inspired by God to write. Often the occasion was this very thing. Doctrinal differences. Not about the color of the carpet, the size of the light fixtures, the color of the chairs, or if we had those or pews, the type of song books, not that. Much deeper things like our pastor's been helping us understand like who Christ is. Was he fully God and was he fully man? If you said here this morning and that's not an importance to you, you've missed the point. It's so important to you that it means the difference between life and death. Matthew 10, 34 says, Christ himself said this about his work and ministry. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Following that passage are these statements. A man's own family would become his enemy. A lady's own family could well be the ones who become her enemy. That experience was fleshed out in this church. So take note of the things, and I'm going to read a few that John has said about these who now have left and were different than those who had stayed. I write these things to you, he says in chapter 2, about those who are trying to deceive you. There was an active war going on. It was occurring not with hands and feet, but in the minds of those who were there. They were actively pursuing those who remained under the confidence of Christ walking in his ways. Those who had left were pursuing them, trying to draw them out. It wasn't like they left and they were fine with leaving and everybody was fine and they simply separated. No. This was an ugly divorce. The one who left sought the one who remained and they were not satisfied to just simply leave. As John writes. John calls them liars. Did you normally call folks that? If you've got a friendly difference. So you and your wife are debating something in your home. You look at her and you say, you're a liar. I bet that works well. That's not the language you use, is it? Not at all is that the language you use with those who have small or light differences. Rather, it's reserved for those who deserve 
such a title. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. The very words that John spoke about these people. Even in chapter 3 and verse 10, he looked at them. They're children of the devil. Now, brother and sister, to call someone a child of the devil is quite a statement. John even encourages the church and those that remain not to be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It's not that they don't like a few things about you. They can't stand who you are. They can't stand what you stand for. They hate the things you love and love the things you hate. They speak against you with violent words and statements. That's what he was saying. And what of these people who remained? Were they all there confident and encouraged and strong? Chapter 3 and verse 20 said, Whenever our heart condemns us, so there they sat in the pews of the church, hearing the faithful teaching and preaching of the word, even having the privilege of one of the apostles of being a part of the leadership in that congregation. And yet the Bible says that their heart at times would point its finger against them. Not only was it outward in their struggles, but inward in their difficulties. And then John says, there were many false prophets who had gone out into the world. Many. <clears throat> and so we kind of see some of what's going on in the life of that church. Not that the false prophets weren't getting a hearing either. If we're counting numbers and converts, the Bible says in John 4 and 5, 1 John 4 and 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. If we're not careful measure things by numbers, we might look at those who had left and said, well, they certainly appear to be far more successful than this smaller group or band of people who remain faithful to the Scripture and the teaching of God's Word. You can see in Revelation chapter 1 and 2 about the churches, the seven churches, and those who were commended were often those who were small in number and few and who had remained faithful. So if we're looking at numbers, the false prophets had quite the following. They were listened to and probably quite capable in their speaking, who spoke with a great deal of confidence. That's what Paul said in the book of Timothy. Those folks who had left the faith and who were speaking on behalf of false teaching spoke it with a sense of confidence. And they were turning the faith to some households upside down. The Bible reminds us that their followers, wide is the gate, broad is the way which leads to destruction, and few be that go in that gate. No, no, many. <clears throat> so we see some of what was going on, and then here was the challenge given to this church. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he says this. There is a sin that leads to death. 
So this congregation had watched several of the people of which they knew leave, embrace different things, turn against the things they once believed. They were now left. Things just go on like always, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. There were those who were discouraged. You think they would experience some of that? There were those who were confused. There were those who were flirting with heading out and following the group who had left. The world is full of this, isn't it? And we on the pew of this church face that in this life and will certainly. You see, the loss that these Christians experienced and mourned over, the suffering that was in their heart, it was not because of the loss of a job or money. It wasn't the death of a loved one. Neither does it appear that they were experiencing any physical suffering at this moment. But it was the separation or divorce and estrangement of those that they'd once sung the worship of God with. It was those that they had served the Lord with, read the Bible with, heard sermons with. It was those that had abandoned their first love. That, you see, was what ripping the heart out of these folks in this day, in this moment. And I thought of myself in light of these statements. I thought, do I even get concerned if someone in our pews leave and never show back up? Do I even take an interest if someone leaves and follows something that's not a gospel, but they embrace it and off they go? I hope that from this, the Lord helps me love you more and be more concerned about the choices you make morally and the choices you make theologically and doctrinally. We use those words as if they're just things we banter around. But friend, your life depends on them. That's what John was saying. <clears throat> so this morning, let's look then at the text and ask this about John. Had he experienced this in his own life before? How did he handle it? If you'll think with me in John's... Chapter 6, there in the synagogue in Capernaum, when he'd been following Christ there for many uh, months. Christ was quite popular and many were following him. There were a large number of people there. And Christ began to teach about himself being the bread of life and the true drink. And you remember, if you've read your Bibles... That that day it was stated that many of his disciples could not endure what he said about himself. And what did they do? They hung around. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they left. They left. Why did they leave? Because Christ explained who he was. He called men to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They were fine eating what he miraculously fed them. They were fine when he was making them well, when their bodies were sick. He was fine. They were fine when he was doing all of these kinds of things. 
when they were brought face to face with the reality that the man who walked that day in Palestine was none less than God himself, the promise of the Old Testament scripture, the hope of the nation of Israel, the Christ of the Bible, and he declared himself to be that. They said, we know who your father is. You look like everybody else. And the Bible says they left. He looked to the twelve, of which John was one, and he said, are you going to leave too? Often Peter got it wrong, but that day he got it right. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. <clears throat> so then this morning, we know that John not only is trying to encourage these brothers, but he experienced it himself. So John, the beloved pastor, is here doing two things, I believe, uh, two ditches of which we are prone to fall into. One is discouragement. We see someone leave, and we can name some names in our own congregation. Some names that one day, at one point, at one time, we walked with and worshipped with, who now have no love for that kind of stuff, who've completely turned their back on it altogether. What do we do? Well, John says, know this, brethren. The first thing, and you'll note in, in verse 12 of chapter 2 that John reminds them that he's there and his purpose is, I believe, in these verses is to comfort the faithful. And rightly so, because certainly their hearts were troubled. And you, rem you remember in John chapter 14 how Christ taught his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he told them truth. And it is John's way as a pastor and faithful to his congregation, those who were experiencing this confusion and discouragement and the difficulties that come with this kind of separation. Notice what he says to them. And first note these things. He addresses three different groups of people. Little children of which he's used, I think, 13 times. One in reference to the children of the devil. So in the other 12, he's used the word children. A term of endearment and pastoral love and care. Certainly we know that's true. But also we can think of other things that the Bible has taught us about the word children. John was the apostle that spoke often of what it meant to be born again. You and I and our families are delighted uh, recently with the many ladies who are with child. And they're going to have a child born. When we become a part of the family of God, we are born as children, the Bible says, into that family. So it's a reminder of the way in which we've come into the family of God. Also, it's a reminder, isn't it, of the way in which we must approach the kingdom of God. Like little children. Was it not a beautiful thing to listen to the prayers of the young this morning? Out of the mouth of babes and infants, God has ordained praise. And it is for ourselves that as we come to Christ, we understand our attitude and our approach must be that of a child. It's not for us a term, a derogatory statement. You're just children. You don't know anything. You're dumb. You've not been around. Often when we use the word child, that's what we mean, isn't it? 
You're less than what we are. We're adults. We know so much more than you. That's not at all the way John's using it here, is it? But we understand for us, it's a delight to be under the care of a father that calls his children like God calls us. And he tells us to call him Abba, Father. What a beautiful thing. Notice next. So the word children is addressed to the entire congregation. Even in chapter 3, verse 2, John himself identifies himself as a child of God along with the congregation. But also notice he addresses fathers. I've wrestled with this and read on many things about this. But in some sense, not that this is exactly maybe what it all means, but certainly, as I look around this congregation, there are those who are pillars here. There's a Tim Hoke. There's a Dave Owens. There's a Jim Golly. There's a Keith Matty. There are men who have walked with God for years, who we would consider fathers in the faith. Not just because of their years, but because of their maturity. And how vital are they in the moments when this church goes through different discouragements or struggles. We turn and we watch them, and we ought to. That's what the Bible's given us as a family, isn't it? Wouldn't it be strange if in a family, one night somebody hears something outside and daddy sits in the bed shaking with the covers over and he calls for the children. Would y'all please go out and see what's going on? That's not normal. Daddy says, you all stay in the bed. I'll go see what's going on. Now, I believe in these moments... As John encourages the congregation, he speaks and addresses those who in the level of maturity have walked along with God. What about the young men? And aren't we blessed here? We've got John Lynn and Lester and uh, Jeremy who came and read and Adam and I can look around and Jason Houston, many others, young men who are vigorous, young in age, still got all their hair. Their chest hadn't fallen down into their drawers, right? They're still strong. And when we call for a piano to be moved, we don't call me or Tim or Dave. We'll probably pull a muscle. We call these young men. They're vigorous and healthy and strong, and they have a place in the congregation of the righteous. And it is that John addresses these three categories of people. Doesn't leave anyone out, but sets those apart who ought to be an example in these times and moments of discouragement. Now notice what he doesn't do. Many times we hear those who want are well-meaning. They come and they say in these moments when we're experiencing something, we hear words like this, don't worry, don't worry. Things will get better. Just do the best you can. Just don't think about it. Don't give up. In this famous statement, time heals everything. If you'll notice, John never says that. Any of those things. 
But the content of his comfort is this. Notice with me. To the little children, he says that your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Why in the world, in the midst of a difficulty, when many had left, would this be a comfort? Because this is the reason. It's appointed unto every man. You can put yours in there. Once to die, and after that the judgment. What is the hope and the light in the church? What is the thing it declares first and foremost? That the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's our advocate and he's the offering that removes the wrath of God. If your greatest need was to fix your hip, Dr. Mark's here. If your greatest need is to fix your plumbing, Wiley's here. If you've got a need of another type, someone else is here. But your biggest need is what you're going to do with your sins when you die. The reality is, graveyards and funeral homes are in every county, in every city. There might not be McDonald's and Burger King, but there are funeral homes and gravesides. For this fact, you will most certainly die. And the greatest delight or comfort for all the children of God is that their sins in Him have been put away completely. It's not your works of righteousness completed by yourself. It's not that he made forgiveness possible. He purchased it completely on your behalf. For his name's sake, in heaven, when your account is called up, it's his name that's removed every transgression and sin. It is for those who are suffering and experiencing that great difficulty that they could rest on this great reality. My sins are gone. Heaven is mine. I have a living hope in all in Christ. And I am complete in him. Nothing to be added. So we see the comfort for the body of Christ. Notice then for the fathers, what is mentioned? You know the father. What? Now in what ways would that be a comfort for the congregation? The comfort for the congregation is that those who are there haven't sought to run the church by fleshly means. The Dave Owens, the Tim Holtz, and others who have established for many years a faith in the living God, the creator of all the universe. Know this, if anyone loves me, Christ says, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What? The God that spoke into existence everything comes and makes his home with us. We experience him, knowing him in reality. What a blessing. So it is that for those who are experiencing a struggle, look to those around you. Watch them. What are they confident in? They're confident in the one that spoke everything into existence. They're confident in him. They draw encouragement from him. They fellowship and enjoy him. Their religion is about him. Notice this then. It also mentions that you know him who is from the beginning. 
This statement means and brings them back to the reality of the experiential knowledge of who Christ is. Let me ask you this. How often have you sat around with your history book, read about George Washington's Valley Forge experience and wept? Do you know George Washington like you know Christ? George Washington is an important figure in history. And I'm thankful for the providential dealings of God that he brought him in our nation. But I've never wept a tear over what George Washington did. I'm thankful. What about Christ? The Bible says here, you know him who is from the beginning. It's this kind of encouragement that bolsters and strengthens the body of Christ. In the moments of this kind of discouragement, when because of false teaching in the world, those leave. You know him who is from the beginning. This knowing of which John speaks, and you read his letters, the Gospel of John and the others, is this intimate knowledge of which he speaks in the first chapter of this very book. We saw him. We gazed upon him. We handled and touched him. We know the word of life. It's experiential in the sense that as you get alone with him, with his word, he meets you in that place. As you come to worship him in this place, he meets you in this way that's mysterious. Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. When he meets you and you're driving down the road and you're considering that he left heaven on your account, that though he was rich and wealthy, in ways that which we can't even understand, he became poor on your behalf. And though you were full of sin and he was perfect at that moment in time, in history, he bore your sins up in his own body. He exchanged with you his righteousness for your unrighteousness. He paid the price in full. You experienced that in a way, not just some theological statement, but it's food for your thirsty soul. And notice now quickly with me, these young men, they're strong. You like that word? They're strong. Is that speaking of physical strength? I don't think so. Not at all. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, <clears throat> we wouldn't say that. Not at all. And as we think about this statement concerning these young men, their physical strength? No. But strong indeed. Their victory, their overcoming. But let me ask you something. How many of you enjoy cheering for a losing team? You, you think that's fun? You sit around, you can't wait for them to play the next weekend. You know they're going to lose. But boy, you're in there. You're gripped. Not at all. We said here, irregardless of the numbers of the faithful, everywhere they're scattered across this world, little huts, houses, under trees, but they believe in Christ, the Son of God. They've cast everything on Him. Their hope is the Creator of the universe who sent His only Son. They're living after His principles. They're longing for his appearance. They win. We win 
That's what he says right here in the scripture about these young men. The Bible says their strength comes from where? The confidence they have in Christ. The Bible says in Colossians that the power of God is demonstrated in this way with endurance and patience, with joy, giving God thanks. You want to know who's strong and mighty? It's not the man who can take a city. It's the man by whom through the Spirit of God that endures under every circumstance with confidence in the God that created him, with joy in the Christ that redeemed him. And on his lips is the testimony of thanksgiving in all things. That you see, my brothers and sisters, is those who are strong and mighty. Now do note in this place, they overcome, right? They're victorious. And notice in the second statement about this group, it says you've overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you. John, in his writings, as much to say about the importance of the word of God in us, giving us strength to overcome. You think for a moment you're any match for the devil? Oh, goodness, friend. As much as I dislike that rascal, I am no match for him. Left to myself, he'd eat me like a lion. If you set me free in Africa, I can't run fast nor far. I'm helpless there, friend. So are you and so am I. Set free in this world, the devil will eat us alive. The Bible's clear on that. So we find in the Word of God our strength and victory. The Bible says in the Psalms, his word is hidden in his heart that he might not sin. So it is that the young man hides the word of God in his heart, takes the word of God in his hand. As Ephesians 6 says, his word is in his hand that he might fight the enemy with the sword of the spirit. In Psalm 119 again, his way is directed by taking heed to his word. And the Bible says in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What an amazing, more than conquerors. Have you ever thought about that? How can you be more than a conqueror? The Bible says in Christ we are that. <clears throat> the young men among us who demonstrate vigor and strength do so because of these things. They're full of the word. You cut them like they, it was said of Bunyan. Anywhere you cut him, he bleeds the Bible. And it's in that very way in which we find ourselves equipped and victorious in the battle. Even in this very book it says in 1 John that by faith they have overcome the world. You will note in that place that the evil one is the one that's after them. The Bible's very clear about the devil. You might not be, but it is. You might think it's kind of an antiquated and outdated statement. Or maybe you don't think much about what he's about. But he's after you. I, tell, I want you to know that. The Bible's clear about that. And let me note in the next section of these scripture, it makes it clear. There's a caution to the faithful. And boy, when I come to this, it breaks my heart to share. The illustrations that the Bible gives us. 
about this reality. He comforts the faithful, but right here in reality, he cautions the faithful. Why? Because many had left. Many had left. They'd worshipped. They'd read. They heard. They knew John. They were close to Calvary in proximity in years. They left. Take heed, he that standeth, lest he fall. You sit here this morning and you think, I'll never leave. Boy, I wish you could get in a closet with Peter and he'd help you, wouldn't he? He said that one day, didn't he? And boy, did he find out something different. He came back delighted in the fact that Christ is praying for him. His own strength would never keep him. But note with me here the caution to the faithful. The Bible says that the world, that we're not to love the world. Now what is John speaking of in this place? What is it that the Bible's speaking of when it says don't love the world? When he in the previous few verses said that he died for the world. It's a good question. What is the word world here talking about? It's talking about the values and thoughts, the intellectual thinkings and actions. It's the system of living which disregards God and his word. It's illustrated with Eve. That tree in and of itself wasn't bad. It was that God said, don't touch it. Or don't take of it and eat of it. Don't take of it and eat of it. And it was the devil who tempted Eve. And what occurred was she forgot what God said. And all of a sudden she was resting on her own faculties. She looked at it and it looked good. Inward she thought, I bet it tasted good. And then she thought, it'll make me wise too. That's exactly what the world does. It reasons the truth of God away. It takes the things that God says and disregards them. And that's what had happened from those who had left. The world works on this premise. Power, might, money, and beauty. The Bible's clear that it works on this premise, those who love God. Humility, service, contentment, fear of the Lord. They're in complete opposition. The exhortation John gives is don't love this world or the things in it. We can find in the lives of those that are left us in Scripture like Lot's wife. In the book of Luke, it says remember Lot's wife. Why in the world would we remember Lot's wife? We don't even have her name. It's because she left a place that was destroyed by God because of its sin, but the place never left her. As she was leaving it, she turned back and longed for it. Is that the way we are? When we leave the world, we turn and we want it again. The Bible says exactly that about Lot's wife. What in the world entices you? This man breaks my heart to even... Think about what he left. Demas, the Bible says, in the book of Philemon, in the book of Colossians, was a faithful brother of Paul. But in 2 Timothy 4.10, and forever stated, even on, for me, on his headstone, it's this. Demas has forsaken me in love with this present world. Is this thing real? It's real. 
Achan, the Bible says in Joshua 7 and 21, giving a clear statement, destroy everything and offer it to God. Saw that bar laying there, saw those gold coins and that beautiful coat. I gotta have it, he said. And he had it, didn't he? These are left for us as a testimony and instruction that we might not long for nor love the things of which John speaks here clearly. Why not love the world? Why not love them both? The old writer of the country song says, trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. Trying to love the world and God is impossible. He's made it so. Your love for him is exclusive and personal. He won't share his love with another. He's jealous about that. To be a friend of the world, James says, is to be an enemy of God. So we know first and foremost, John says here, you can't love them both. You've got to choose. Many of you that are here, myself included, through the years have tried. We're even at times tempted as we look across the way and see what others have. We want to, like the world, we, it's hard for us to say, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. The world says we just want their beauty. The world says, get all you can get while you're here because I guarantee you, it's worth it. Get all the stuff you can get. The Bible says, if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul, what has he got? You can't love them both is the first point. The second point is, they're completely and totally different operating systems. I don't know much about computers, but I do know this. Somebody's told me at one time, it's got something in there that operates the thing. <laughs> and it's got to have one. Wes Mitchell can tell us about that. So you know what it is that the world runs on. It's flesh, the inward desires. We're called to put that to death. The world runs on what it sees. It's eyes. We're called not to walk by eyes, but by faith. The Bible says that the world is all about possessions. But as I've said, if we gain them all and lose our soul, we have nothing. Completely two different ways of operating. There's some of you here struggling with that. I struggle with that. This church was struggling with that. What does the world have to offer you? Are you willing to give up the love of God for the love of the world? Are you willing to nurture your flesh rather than kill it? Are you willing to live by sight rather than by faith? Are you ready to gather up everything you can get in your bank account, in your driveway, in your home? And lose your soul. Friend, if you're a horse trader, I would encourage you to think deeply and clearly about that. Because in the last place, John says this about the world. And it's important. I think it's kind of like Bitcoin. It's passing away. There's nothing to it. You can't grab it. The world, the Bible says according to John, in all places in the Scripture, is becoming obsolete. 
Now, wouldn't that be good if you went to somewhere to buy something and they said, well, this is being discontinued. You can't get a part for it ever. As a matter of fact, it won't be long and it'll be completely shot. But I want to sell it to you. And as a thrifty buyer, and you've been looking on all of the websites, you buy it anyway. Everything tells you not to. But you're convinced by your eyes. And you've got a warm, fuzzy feeling. And that always is right, right? <laughs> and wouldn't this look good on you or in your home? You buy. John tells us the same thing that I would tell you if you were that kind of buyer. You just got ripped off. Somebody sold you a bill of goods. The Bible is clear in this passage. This world is coming to an end. But those who embrace the truth of Christ... Those who follow after his teaching. Those who love those who love him. Those who live that way remain forever. You see, if in this life we only have hope, what did Paul say about us? We're all most to be pitied. But what about our hope? It goes beyond the grave. That's the reality. That's why in Romans... Paul said we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Even if tribulation or sword or peril or famine, if any of those things gripped us, and one day we like Polycarp about to stand in the fire, we're going to die in our flesh, rot off our bones by the fire. Eighty and six years I've served him, and he's never let me down. That's the question you've got to ask. Will in these moments... Your love for the world carry you through eternity. I'm telling you. According to the Bible, it will not. Will your love for Christ, obedience to him, and love for those who love him, end you up in a place where for eternity you enjoy his presence, certainly. So what I ask you this morning, if you would be encouraged, be encouraged by the things that the Bible gives us. Your sins are put away. You know the Father. You've known Christ who is from the beginning. Your strength comes from the Word of God abiding in you and you having hope in Him. If you have any, any inkling of love for the world, consider carefully what it will cost you. In the end, brothers and sisters, it will cost you everything. My hope is that when... Years come and years go. All of you will remain right here embracing Christ, loving his people, loving his truth and following. Let's pray together that would be the case. <clears throat> Father, we do ask you this morning as we come and we're reminded of the great reasons for encouragement. Lord, we are thankful that the truth of Christ brings a tear to our eye. No other historical event nor the reality in the past has implications in the future like what it means to trust in a Savior, our living hope, and our head. And Lord, for those who are wrestling with the world and the love of it, we pray that you would separate them from it. You would remind them of its end. They would see the cost and flee to our Savior who himself gives life and hope everlasting.
Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond.